Morning family. I want to say right up front that this morning we come to a tricky passage, which you would have figured out if you've read it on your own through the week with others in growth groups. It's tricky for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's tricky to work out actually what's being said in the passage. It's tricky, secondly, to work out what to do with it in our context, how to apply it. And thirdly, it's tricky because we all carry a story and experience, and for many of us, that includes pain uh, around these kind of issues with church, relationships, in leaders, and those kind of things. So uh, this can, for some people, feel like picking at a scab. So I just want to acknowledge that right up front. Uh, and yet, this is God's good word to us, uh, particularly as Jesus speaks very practically about what it will mean to live as his people in his kingdom. So uh, before I go any further, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your love, as has been said and sung, and I just want to repeat again that uh, you have sought us out, not because we were cute and cuddly, but you have adopted rebels as your children through Jesus. And we thank you that you are a present father. You're a good father. You are involved in the lives with your children and your word is good for us. And so as we come to it now, might you show us, please, what it is you intend for us to think and feel and how to respond. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we come to quite a specific part of Jesus' teaching, I want to take us through three big foundational truths that lay behind it. There's more, but let me just give you three. Three big things that shape the way that Jesus views the world so that we might bear that in mind as we come to the details. Firstly, is the reality of sin. We live in the overlap of the ages. The new age, the age of the Spirit has broken in. Jesus has gone to the cross to deal with the power and the penalty of sin. Forgiveness, full and final, is ours. And yet, the, the new age isn't here in its fullness yet. And so in that overlap, the presence of sin remains. And you just cannot make any sense of this kind of teaching unless you acknowledge that. That we, as followers of Jesus, always live in this tension between holiness and sin. Uh, between being pure and right and yet also carrying around this sin nature which is why John writes in his first letter he goes I write this to you so that you will not sin but as you do sin let me tell you about Jesus your advocate your atoning sacrifice it's critical to realize that we continue to carry around a sin nature and therefore sin against each other wound each other that includes all of us it includes your leaders, it includes me. Uh, you can't make sense of why Jesus will give us this part of the Bible unless we have realistic expectations about what it'll mean to belong to the kingdom in this day. Second big foundational truth is our corporate identity. Individualism isn't necessarily a bad thing. It promotes taking responsibility thinking things through for yourself, taking a stand as someone who's responsible and accountable, not just going with the crowd. But there's a toxic form of individualism. 
which is the one where the pursuit of freedom and self-fulfillment and self-actualization comes with no regard to the society, to the community, to the impact that we have. And as many have pointed out, it's, it's the air that we breathe in our context, Western context. And so this air, it, it's the air that we breathe as Christians and it, it shapes the way that we can think wrongly about church and about relationships. We assess them on what it'll do for me. What do I get out of this deal? You know, is your calendar free enough in order to get along to a gathering with this group of people? Or have you got other stuff that you want to get to? Is the style of church, does it tick all of your boxes? And if it doesn't, I'm going to go shopping for another one. Or what about when someone annoys you or wrongs you or leaders implement discipline? What? I'm, I'm out of here. I'm looking for another church where that won't happen. Good luck if this first point is true, sin. Now, there are times when some of those reasons might be valid, but you can't make sense of this passage unless you embrace in your identity that you're a social being and that in your new identity in Christ, there is such a strong dimension to belonging to a community. There's the second thing. Thirdly, is the issue of unity. Now, there's a number of ways you could come at describing what Christianity is in its essence or what it's about. Here's one way. It's about unity. The goal of God is to bring unity cosmically under Jesus. Ephesians 1 verse 10, that that all of history is tracking towards everything being united under him. Sinners being united back to God through forgiveness. Sinners restored and united to each other as they're as we're brought into the family, even the whole creation, the, the groaning creation to be restored with all beings. But given our first point, the presence of sin that remains for now, Jesus is, is teaching the importance of paying constant attention to maintaining our unity. It's a little bit like my lawn at the moment. Is it like yours with all the rain and the sun? If I take my eyes off it, lose a kid in it, right? It just goes through Um Unity is like that. If we take our eyes off it, it'll get away from us. We will split. And here's the thing. Unity doesn't equal tolerance. That's kind of how our community, our world thinks about it. We would be a united community if we would just all tolerate each other, where tolerance is thought of as equally affirming every different view and so on. But actually what we find here is that gospel unity actually has edges, has boundaries. Jesus says we'll require correcting, rebuking, repenting. Things that are toxic individualism goes, no way. But Jesus calls us to it. There's three big foundational truths that we must bear in mind as we come to stepping through this text. So let's do that. And then we'll consider how we might apply that into our lives. Uh, So Jesus gives us essentially four steps in how to handle sin amongst us. Verse 15, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, you have won them over. 
Now, here's the first little tricky part of this text. Has anyone got a different translation that read slightly differently? What's it say? Verse 15. If someone sins against you, is one read. Another one, if someone sins... Now, they're two different things and you'd apply them differently, wouldn't you? If it's someone sins against you, then that's a much narrower application as opposed to just any brother or sister sinning, not necessarily against you in the first instance. But Now, why have we got that? Well, um, Christianity is based on the truth and it can handle pushing and prodding, right? There's no conspiracies. You'll actually find a footnote in most of your translations that points out there is a manuscript difference here. When we go back to the earliest manuscripts uh, in which, from which we get our English translations, one has the longer reading against you, the other has a shorter. It's very hard to work out what the original reading was. There's reasons why you could go both. What is certain is that if it's a brother or sister who sins, that you go to them. Not just because they annoy you. <laughs> Oh man, you'll laugh. I just can't handle your laugh. Every time you laugh, I just want to leave this church. So I'm going to apply Matthew 18 verse 15. I'm coming to... Silly example. But I do think we can easily confuse annoyance, personal preferences and tastes and seriously low order things with serious moral sin. And I'll take it that's what Jesus has in mind here, serious sin. Why? Well, because of the context. You remember last week? You know, this flows straight on from it, where Jesus has been dealing with uh, the sin of causing someone to stumble, the sin of causing yourself to stumble, to cut off a limb. Then he gave the parable immediately before this of the sheep wandering off and winning them back. I also take it that uh, the word win there, where he says, if they listen to you, you have won them over has the same sense as what Paul has when he uses it in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, chase it later, where there he talks about winning souls, saving people from hell to heaven. This is a serious issue that's on here. So there's first the first step for maintaining unity, whether it's against you or more broadly, to go to the person, not to the gossip train but to go to the person and raise it with, with them. Um, the hope is that as they see it, oh, they can repent of it, there's restoration between that person and God and that relationship and the church, that happens and so we often don't hear about anything more. But if that doesn't work, then verse 16, but if they will not listen take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So don't go, well, I tried, I give up. Uh, Jesus, if it really is a serious thing, we'll come to why you might be going to them later. Then your next step is actually to take two or three others with you. Now, they're not necessarily witnesses of the offence, They don't have to have been there when the supposed offence happened. They're witnessing the engagement between the person who is claiming that they're an offender, possibly the one who's been offended against. And they're there to witness how that engagement happens. 
Now, written between the lines there is before you go as witnesses, you would have actually spoken to the person to try and work out what they're saying has happened and you're going to go to the other person and actually hear, uh, take the time to hear their side of the story and so on. But it can be the case, can't it, that it's easier to listen to someone else who isn't directly involved in some kind of conflict. They don't bring, in the first instance, a kind of personal stake to it, particularly when they are mature Christians. The hope, of course, is, ah, okay, yes, you've helped me see it. I repent, restoration. But if that doesn't work, there's a third step, verse 17. If they still refuse to listen... Tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. This is where unity no longer becomes possible. It's not the first step. There's been a number of steps to get there. But the person who has been shown to be in the wrong by witnesses and now by the group, the community, going, yes, you really are, and refuses to repent, there's now a breaking of fellowship. That's what to treat as a pagan or tax collector means. They're, they're Jewish terms to, to consider. Put them outside of the camp. Uh, don't consider them part of your community. Now, in the first instance, this breaking of relationship might be between the offender and the one who's been offended. Uh, There's a personal relationship that can no longer be what it was in Christ. Uh, Rich, beautiful and so on. There is a dividing, uh, treating them differently. But in the second instance, there's a breaking of fellowship between the unrepentant offender and the community, the church. Now just to cut to a little bit of application right here for us, uh, given our constitution and the way that it's set up, which, by the way, you're all able to get access to, to see how our church has has thought through this and formally uh, structured ourselves. Under our constitution, it's the pastoral leaders of church who would make this decision to break fellowship with the church on behalf of the people. And uh, what might that look like, that breaking of fellowship? Uh, We wouldn't have the person in a growth group where we meet in smaller settings to read the Bible under the Word together. Uh, We wouldn't have them serving in ministry teams. Such a privilege do we count it to to be able to serve the Lord God together in this way. Um, And we we may not have them in the public gathering. Now you need to know that that would only happen having worked through all of these steps that Jesus gives us where much time and uh, listening and because of course there's there's one side of the story and then you need to uh, much prayer uh, and then great sadness when that action happens now with our modern ears you hear that what you do that you what you would break fellowship with people you would put people out how dare you like That doesn't sound like Jesus. That doesn't sound loving. That doesn't sound tolerant. Well, verse 18, Jesus goes on to give us quite a striking promise. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
Now, firstly, again, there's some Jewish language there which was referring to accepting and rejecting. Whatever you accept on earth will be accepted in heaven, reject and so on. Right, wrong, in, out. So what is Jesus saying? God in heaven stands behind the verdict of his disciples on earth. God stands behind the the resolutions of the church, having followed all of this, when it comes to dealing with unrepentant members. I don't know how you respond or feel to that. That can sound pretty scary. Yeah? What? what? Uh, Men? Um, Remember your first point, Jez? Sinful men? Fallible men? Uh, Making decisions that God will say, yes, that's my decision? I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Yes, sin is a reality, experience in church history. As Aussies, we have an allergic reaction to authority. But we are wrestling with the Word of God here. And there's a footnote, again, that I think will help us somewhat, where the, the more literal translation of this would read, whatever you bind on earth will already have been bound in heaven. So so it's not not God's children who then dictate God's will. We decide to do something, God goes, all right, I better sign off on that one and stand behind it. No, no, no. It's saying that God will sovereignly ensure that his will be done through his people. In particular here in the maintaining of unity amongst his people. Which then helps the way that you read verse 19 and 20. Uh, Two verses that can just be ripped out of context and really massacred. Verse 19, Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, there's your classic coffee cup verse, right? There's your inspirational social media post. You know, just two of you get together, agree on it, holiday to Hawaii. Yep, we agree. And Jesus promises, done. Now, we kind of go, that's not what it's saying, is it? Of course it's not. Especially when you pay attention to the context. The context is maintaining unity about dealing with unrepentance amongst the church. And so it's much more likely that he means as you ask for wisdom in dealing with the situation with an unrepentant person, as you then come to a resolution about how to handle it, know that God will answer the request for wisdom and therefore stand behind it. We, I think, typically have a, what can be, a healthy mistrust of human nature, given the first point. A healthy distrust of leadership and plenty of good evidence for that. And yet, we must not distrust the way that God actually sovereignly works his will on earth. We must not deny the way that God actually leads and guides and brings about his will, which again helps you then understand verse 20. For where two or three gather in my name, 
There am I with them. Now again, careful Bible reading will stop you from... Have you heard Christians do this? Oh, you know, I don't, I don't need your structured religious church thing. Because when me and a buddy, if we go surfing together, Jesus is there, we're churching. Now, me and my, my girlfriend, when we go have coffee, Jesus is there. We, we church wherever, whenever. Now, that's not just bad Bible reading, as we'll see in a moment. That betrays a toxic individualism. Uh, an understanding that I'm an island and it doesn't matter about anyone around me. I mean, it's, it's Christmas time and the whole family are getting together, the extended family, right? You know that thing and, and you can't stand most of them. <laughs> and you're like, oh, nah. You know what? I'm just going to go to the beach, my favourite spot, with my favourite part of my family, you know, my spouse and my couple of kids. Because, hey, we're two or three family members are gathered, then, well, that just betrays the idea of family, of belonging. This verse is not about churching whenever and wherever you like. Why do you need two to have Jesus there? You have the Spirit wherever you are on your own. You don't need two for Jesus to show up. But if you, if you come to understand actually what Christianity brings you into, then you're going to think differently about churching. But that's not what the verse is talking about. What is it talking about? Well, it's talking about Jesus standing behind the correction and discipline of his church. There's, there's the word for. You know, for, because where two or three gather, again, around this issue, this situation, Jesus says, I'm there with you. And we go, oh, that sounds so unloving. But no, no, it's because Jesus loves that he corrects. He says to the church in Laodicea, Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. It's because he loves now, tragically, some of you know the experience of parents who have just tapped out, who've not engaged, who've not cared, who've not actually brought... And you know that that's not an outworking of love. Others of us have been blessed to have what feels horrible and painful, and that's Hebrews 12. Discipline says it's not comfortable, and yet it comes from a place of love. How does Jesus work out his love, his concern? Through his people. So there's a walk through the text, the steps that Jesus gives us in order to maintain unity, particularly in dealing with sin. Let's move finally to how we might think about applying this 2,000 years on in our context. Now, in one sense, it can be quite simple, and it is simple, and it does happen as people do that first thing. Go to the brother or sister, and it's resolved. We never hear about it. Praise God. And yet, as soon as it gets past that, it gets very complex quickly. Especially given that 2,000 years since Jesus spoke these words, and in our particular context, we have much larger gatherings, though there were large gatherings in the first century, the time of Jesus, that's not formed yet. Uh, We have larger public gatherings. We have state and federal laws to integrate and abide by as they are honouring to God. 
We have public liability and litigation and so on that didn't exist in this first context. Things get very knotty quickly. Now, know this, that it's something that as leaders we do take very seriously and give a whole lot of time and energy and prayer to. But I must say that given that first point, given who we, are, we haven't always, in every part, got it right. And for that, we're sorry. But Jesus says, I stand behind this, you're to do this. How are we therefore to think about applying this together? If you were to go and do Matthew 18 verse 15, how might you do it? Well, let me take you through three principles to bear in mind. The first one is restoratively. That is, the goal is restoration. When would you choose to do verse 15, go to the person about a sin, but actually do Matthew chapter 5, turn the other cheek? Hmm. Uh, do Proverbs 19 verse 11, it's your glory to overlook an offence. You've got a whole bunch in the Bible about bearing with and letting go and not actually acting on And then you've got Matthew 15. Again, warns you of just a simplistic approach to understanding Jesus and the Bible. Well, it's not always easy to work out. Most of the time, it may not be. Though, let me give you two things that would drive you to actually act on it. First thing, it's not the main one, but if you are struggling to forgive someone who has sinned against you. When you reflect on forgiveness from, from the Scriptures, you don't actually need the person to come and repent to you in order to forgive them in some sense. And yet, it can be the case that we get stuck, that a root of bitterness start sprouting and so actually going to someone who may not even be aware of this thing in, in love and, and bringing them to an awareness of it allows some acknowledgement, some repentance and restoration. But here's, here's the main reason on view here why you would act on it. It's because the spiritual health of the person or the community is at stake. This is actually other person focused, not on yourself. Take the example at a personal level, um, the example of becoming aware that someone is committing sexual immorality as they sleep with someone who is not their wife, their, their husband. Toxic individualism goes, it's not my place, you know, each to their own and whatever. Fear goes, oh, it's wrong, but oh, I just can't handle the thought of the conflict, what might come of it. But love, love for others and love for the community says, I'm so concerned for your spiritual health, for the health of the people that you belong to, that I must raise this with you. In fact, we get the exact example of this in 1 Corinthians 5. Come over there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And he's picked up word of horrific sexual immorality. You see it there, chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, 
and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. (laughs) Even the non-Christian world who couldn't care less about the honour of God, and they wouldn't even go there. And you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. Now, this is interesting. Note the, the parallels back to Matthew 18. Paul is an apostle, a capital A apostle, uh, writing and speaking as one inspired by the Spirit on behalf of God. He's not there, but in spirit, he is. And I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and when I'm with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, again, see the parallel, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now that sounds horrific. It sounds so judgmental to to condemn. Well, firstly, just know uh, this has corporate implications and so Paul says, break fellowship. But note the goal, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. This is not to condemn. This is still with a heart of love for the person, for a heart... Of their, for their good, their greatest good. If serious sin is tolerated, the whole community will have serious problems. So there's the first principle as we think about when you would, wouldn't act on Matthew 18. Uh, to, to restore unity for someone who's seriously sinning between God and themselves and each other. And to preserve unity for the group. And actually, by the by, I chase it up later, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, seems that Paul is writing of this same man that they had uh, broken away from, who has actually repented. And there he says, welcome him back in forgiveness, in love, and so on. So again, the goal is restorative. Second principle to bear in mind as you go about Matthew 18 is... Doing it appropriately. Now, what I mean by this is, who's involved? Did you notice the escalation? It starts privately one-to-one. Just you go to the other. Not to all your mates. Not to Facebook. But to the person. Notice there, there's an assumed personal relationship. An ability to actually go to someone that you know with a relationship. And then as that doesn't work, it gets semi-private as just a couple of other witnesses come in. But it's still contained, it's still small. It's only when that doesn't work that it then becomes public in being brought to the church. Now Jesus doesn't say if it's to be brought to the whole gathering or to a representation of it. At this point, Matthew 18, the church isn't fully formed as it will be as he goes to the cross, the Spirit uh, is sent and the apostles set up church which has governance, which has uh, elders, leaders and so on. And so let me tell you how we handle it given our constitution, given our context. If that were to happen, as someone bringing the issue to the leader's attention who are representatives of the church, we would take that issue to the growth group that that person was in, not to this public setting, which even this isn't everyone of our church family gathered. Um, 
the growth group would act as the representative of the church there. And the reason we do it in that way is that personal relationships are a thread that run through this text. And so if the whole church was small enough for everyone to know everyone, then of course you could do it when they're all assembled. Or if the sin was so public everyone knew about it, the 1 Corinthians 5, you might do it in a more public setting. But we don't bring the details of people into this setting of people that you don't all know, given the principles that Jesus is operating with here. So just don't mistake that as us never doing this, not taking this seriously. It happens, just happens in what we trust is the most appropriate context that will be good for the offender, that will be good for the group. There is an exception though, and that's when it comes to church leaders, senior leaders. 1 Timothy 5, 19. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses, but those elders who are sinning you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. Such is the nature that uh, sin of serious leadership has such an effect on the whole that it's to be dealt with publicly. And you see an example of that when Paul will rebuke Peter uh, in Galatians when Peter has shrunk back from eating with the Gentiles. But ordinarily, without brushing over sin, the principle is not to broadcast the sin further than will be good for the person and the group. It takes a lot of thought and care and wisdom and we trust the guidance of God to see that happen well. Now, I hope it goes without saying, but let me say it. Any offence or alleged offence which state, federal laws would require us to report, uh, of course, we would and we do. There's the second principle, dealing with it appropriately in the appropriate setting. Thirdly, uh, okay, you, you're going to do this. H- how do you do it? How do we do it? Well, humbly. That was the message of last week, yeah? Where Jesus made so much of the mark of the person who's in the kingdom is humility, like this little child. It's a theme that runs through the chapter. So what would a humble application of this look like? What would a humble rebuke, giving a rebuke, look like? I want to put to you, it'll include gentleness, care and hope. Gentleness. Galatians 6.1. If someone is caught in a sin, you should restore them gently. The goal is not vindication. The goal is not revenge, getting one back up on feeling. The goal is love for their good. And so there's a gentleness. If you, if you can't come at the person in gentleness, you're not ready to come. Second, you'll come carefully. That verse, same verse, goes on to say, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. To rebuke, to apply this stuff does require confrontation. Most of us, most normal people, kind of go, confrontation. Some people just love the stuff. Um, But we go, no, 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 Jesus is calling us to it, but to it carefully, um, to reflect on our own lives, There's humility need, there's care need that we wouldn't fall into the same sin. But thirdly, to do it hopefully because of the God who leads us. Um, 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul instructs Timothy to do rebuking, correcting, in the hope that 
God will grant them repentance. Notice this theme that just keeps running through it. At the heart of Christianity is unity, is restoration through forgiveness in the gospel. And so as we do this, we can do this in the hope that that is what God has and will continue to work among us. The God who brings restoration. So we, do, we bring a rebuke with humility. What about receiving a rebuke? <laughs> that requires humility. I don't know about you, do you have that kind of someone comes with a, a rebuke, a correction, just poof, the boxing gloves are on, so to speak. Like you, you're ready to just, uh, I find that's my sinful, natural, immediate reaction. It's like, no, 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 no. Hands down, gloves off, in the pockets. Big breath, pray. And then listen. Listen. Listen carefully. So that we might be able to go away and honestly reflect on what the person has raised. And in doing that, we might actually come to see, oh yes, here's how I've fallen, how I can repent. Thank you, Father, for loving me enough to use that person. As we listen carefully, as we reflect honestly, we may come to the point where we go, no, um, in good conscience before God, I, I, no, I can't accept that uh, I am guilty of what you're saying that I am. Well, Jesus gave us the order that the person would bring others in and if they are mature, godly, wise Christians, you can see how they, if it is the case that, no, there's nothing to answer for, they would see that with time and care and, and be able to help the person raising the objection to see and so on. God has great wisdom in the way that he's put his people together for their good. But it does mean that... Um, if someone comes to me with humility, given all the points that we've looked at, I ought not be surprised. Humility will say, ah, oh, yes, Lord, I, I'm not there, I've not arrived. Um, both giving and receiving rebukes in love for the goal of restoration requires humility. It also requires one other thing that I haven't touched on, but Jesus will go on and make it the dominant theme of the second half of the chapter, and that is forgiveness notice that the the, uh, the focus of this has been to restore the other person but but what about our relationships how do we live with all this stuff well we will push into that issue next week friends a tricky passage but one from a loving father uh, can i say in finishing remember this our lives are built on christ not christians our lives are built on christ and not christians we are broken, we are sinful, we will wound each other. And yet, this passage calls us to see the beauty of what it is to be family and the responsibility of what it is to be God's people together. God's people who he is present with. Jesus is with us, warts and all. Isn't that a good God? Isn't that a good message? Let me pray. Well, Father, we ask that this place here might be one where unity is maintained, even deepened in our expression and understanding of it. Please bring great growth, bring many more in to your kingdom through our efforts and give us, please, the grace, the humility to know when a big dose of grace is needed to overlook and when love would actually mean speaking. And so we ask this for your honour, needy, 
little children that we are. Amen.